So the book of Psalms is a collection of poems and songs. I think most of us know that. And um, the most common author being David, he writes over 70. Other authors include, some I never even knew, are the sons of Korah, Asaph, Solomon, Moses, and others. A collection of Psalms written over a few hundred years. If you think about it, David wrote some, and some were written all the way back, or all the way through to the exile. That's I think I, I, I read somehow between 400 years the Psalms are written. And this is very often how I approach a book in the Bible. I open up the book in the Bible, even though it's upside down, I can read my Bible upside down sometimes. And I approach the book and I go to the introduction. And I, I hope that in the introduction it'll tell me what the book's about. It'll tell me who the heroes are of the story. It'll tell me everything I need to know. I, I need to know the facts get to the general knowledge part of it so that if someone mentions a book, I feel like I have a grounding knowledge. And the problem is you can't approach the book of Psalms like that. The book of Psalms were never meant to be approached just for hearing. We're supposed to identify with what we read. They're supposed to move us, not just inform us, because it is written by the person who knows us best, not your husband or your wife or your best friend or your mom or your dad. The book of Psalms is written by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit purposed that book for you and I to read it, not just to hear it, but to identify it. And there's actually a heart connection that is made. So the the Psalms deals with a lot of emotions. Put your hand up if you're emotional. (laughs) Even some dudes, that's awesome. That means that the truth is happening already. Some of us are emotional, and at times we're more emotional than other times. The book of Psalms is just like you and I, full of emotions. There's still some laughter, some getting a elbow in the ribs. So the Psalms helps us deal with our emotions and shape our emotions. I was thinking about it this morning. Sometimes you can walk into a building like this and you can be feeling something emotionally different. You don't feel the same emotions when you walk in here every week. Last week when Ryan was on coffee, he felt very cool, very relaxed. All he had to do was like, I don't know what you do, grind the things, pull the lever down, and it makes a good cup of coffee, right? It's not that difficult. This morning, he found out he had to lead the meeting. I said to him, butterflies, pterodactyls, what's happening in your, in your tummy right now? There's a different emotion. When you come to church and everything feels like it's peachy, there's a different emotion. When you're here because something has happened in the week, there's a different emotion. In different parts of your life, whether it's the birth of a child or the death of a family member, there's different emotions that take place. If you think about it, the spectrum of emotions that we face in our human lives is so vast, isn't it? It's huge. And if we probably had to go through the room, most of us would have different emotions that we're going through right now. And the very reason this book was written was to guide us through. There is a psalm for every place or every part of your life or every emotion that you're facing. It doesn't matter what stage you're in, there is a psalm for it. The ESV Study Bible says the following. It says about the psalms, They enable the whole congregation to take upon themselves to own the troubles and the victories of individual members so that everyone collectively can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. They enable God's people more fully to enjoy being under His care to one more keenly to be pure and holy, seeing purity and holiness as part of God's fatherly gift rather than a burden. Amen. So let's see if we can hit some of the emotions that we're facing this morning. So here's a list of what we could be feeling or what you could be feeling 
this morning. If you want the references, you can come and chat with me. Loneliness, for I am lonely and afflicted. Love, I love you, O Lord. This is all in the book of the Psalms. Or, let all the earth, or all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. Sorrow, for my life is spent with sorrow, my my years with sighing. Joy, you have put joy in my heart when grain and wine, more than grain and wine abound. Not to mention shame, exaltation, wonder, delight, gladness, fear, peace, grief, desire, hope, brokenhearted, gratitude, pain, confidence. The book of Psalms is designed to carry shape and express emotion. And the point of it is, the point of finding yourself and finding yourself emotionally in the book of Psalms is so that what is not of God, what is ungodly, it can cut off. What is of God, it can grow and nurture. Because we do have emotions that are not godly, right? Amen? We, we definitely do. And we have emotions that are godly. We definitely do. The balance needs to be there. So let me ask you this question. Isn't it interesting that a, a book about our emotions and a book where we could find ourselves in every part of our life is written in song. It's not written in a systematic theological guide. I mean, that, that's, I thought that's something I liked. If you gave me a guide with the indexes and told me, if you're feeling like this or if you need this for this day, open up to this, and if you read that, you'll be okay. But it's kind of written like a greatest hits, like a mixtape. Isn't that strange? It's, it's songs and poems. And if you actually read through it, if you go through it chronologically, it doesn't start off with Psalm 1 and go all the way to Psalm 150, and that's the order. It doesn't work like that. Different psalms are actually written in different stages of Israel's existence. Did you know that? I didn't know that. There are psalms written for people who have faced absolute tragedy, and there are psalms written for people who are about to walk into a promise. And that is all found in this book. Isn't it incredible? No matter where you are, like we spoke about that spectrum, whether you're all the way there because you faced a tragedy or you're all the way down there because you've had the biggest triumph so far in your life, the psalm covers that full spectrum. I, f- I find that so incredible. A- and the points of it being the whole difference between this, the, excuse the, the mixtape thing, is that because the psalms were meant not just to refine us. It's not just a set of instruction of to do this and to do that. It's so much more. I heard someone say this line, and I'll never forget it. Where there is a revelation, where God reveals something to you, there is an invitation for action. So very often it seems like God reveals something to us, and when he's revealed something to me, then I carry on. But when God has revealed something to me through his word that he has for me, there is an action that has to be taken. And that action normally is a physical action. It means to do something. It doesn't just mean to remember. Okay, so we're talking about the Psalms. We actually have to get onto one of the Psalms eventually. So we're going to jump onto Psalm 63. The reason we're going on to Psalm 63 is um, it was one of the earliest Psalms I remember. Just after I had met Jesus, I was listening to a lot of different kinds of music. And in my heart, I desired something. I desired to hear something that I could identify with with the journey I was on. I wanted to hear someone talking about Jesus. I wanted to hear someone speaking about what I was reading about in the Bible. And there's an old school band in South Africa called Tree 63. Very old. You're like a 90s. That means you're an 80s baby, maybe even a 70s baby if you remember that. So they, they were probably the first Christian band I saw live. 
And they, they sang a song called Earnestly. And that song, Earnestly, is based on Psalm 63. So is their name. It's Tree 63 because it's 63. And then you wonder about the tree part. And you think, oh, my gosh, Garden of Eden, uh, Cross, uh, Revelation, the tree for the healing of the nations. There's just so much stuff that that could actually mean. These guys have just really thought about the word. And, and the, um, the founder of the band, when, he, when they were asked to gig at a bigger show, they phoned him and they said, we need a name. What's your name going to be? We need to call you something. You can't just be the band without a name. That sounds cool. But we need a name. And um, he answered his phone, and he was looking around, and he goes, oh, you can call us Tree, because he was standing under a tree. That, that, that's, just, that's the depth of it. All right, so let's read um, Psalm 63. So this is a Psalm of David. While he's in the, the desert of Judah, he's busy being hunted by Saul. From verse 1, we're going to read up to verse 8. It says, um, o oh God, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Hello, Dubai. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with, the f- with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. What a psalm. So we're going to work through a couple of the verses, and we're going to draw some meaning out of them. So verse 1, seeking God in expectation to find Him. There we go. So uh, the point of the psalm is not just that when David's in trouble, he knows to go and seek God, and that's the lesson. When you're in trouble, you need to go and find God because it's not that at all. It's that when David went seeking God, there was an expectation to find Him. When David went and spoke with God, there was an expectation to find Him. And the expectation comes from knowing God. I thought this might be a bold statement, but it doesn't just come from understanding God because sometimes God is not there to be understood because very often when we try and conceptualize God into our finite minds, we try and build an understanding of who He is. And then there's so much less of Him to be known because I know how God would react to your situation. I know how God would do this. I know how God would do that. You actually don't know. You've built a perception of what you think God would do, but you haven't given God an opportunity to act. That was fully my thinking when I first met Jesus. God will judge the world. He will do this, this, and this. I cannot believe that you did not come to church on Sunday because you hung over from the night before. Don't worry. God will teach you a lesson. That was my understanding. I'm, I'm not kidding at all. I cannot believe that you're doing this and this, but you come to church and you lift your hands. I cannot believe it. Because actually you're living in hypocrisy. And then God broke something and, and he said, are you giving me an opportunity to actually be in that situation? Or are you, and, and I'm not talking about judging, I'm talking about seeing as it is and, and observing. God's saying, you haven't seen me act yet. How can you call it what it is when you haven't seen me act? And I felt like God said to me, you have not known the extent of my love and my grace. Because a father does not see a child commit the wrong thing and just that's it, they're done. My daughter's at the age where she's starting to, to be disobedient. She does not know what disobedience is, but she's learning disobedience. 
At the same time, she will have to learn what a loving parent, a loving father, and a loving mother does in terms of disciplining her and loving her. I've just learned that right now from Lauren. When Emma does something wrong, Lauren will say to her, No, Emma. She'll discipline her, and literally five seconds later, I love you. You're the most beautiful girl in the world. And my former frame of thinking would be like, are you schizophrenic? How can you do that? And then this, what's going on in your head? It's not at all. It's not at all. I don't want to jump ahead. So here's, here's what happened in my head, and maybe it's happening in yours, is that with my presumption on how God is and how he acts. In fact, that was a lie. And I started to believe that lie. And the lie can come in any form. It doesn't just have to be about how you think God is. It can be about how you think something is at work, why you've got your job, why you're in the situation, why you're in Dubai in summer and you haven't gone off on holiday, why your spouse is like that, why your friend said that to you, why you, when you walked in the door, that person didn't greet you or this. There are so many things that you can build in your perception and it's a lie, but that lie becomes truth when you start believing it. Did you know that? You have empowered. I have empowered a lie because I've believed it. It then becomes truth. And there is only one way to break that lie for it to become the real truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And that's for Jesus to break that thing over you and I. And it sounds spiritual, but it's not at all. It's not at all. There are things in our lives that consistently need to be broken by worship need to be broken by the preaching of the word, need to be broken by godly conversations with men and women who are after our best. Amen? That's what we do. Iron, how does that, that proverb go? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Friends, this place, you're looking around you, this is our family where we sharpen each other. We're not coming here to call things out of each other. We're coming here to call life into each other. And sometimes you won't reach that destination if you're tied up believing something that isn't true about who God is or what he has for you. Amen. Verse 2, his power and glory displayed. I love this. I, I kind of, I wanted to, it reminds me of when people are preaching and they do that whole, and then people are dropping and things are happening. And there's a display of God's power. You know, like if I called Morty up onto the stage now and did like some funny, and she just, you guys would be like, but then this is, this is what God spoke to me through that. He said, your mom, your father, and your brother. And in my family, there's four of us, and we all have twin brothers. Okay, my mom has a twin brother. My dad passed away. He had a twin brother. And I have a twin brother, and I'm my twin brother's twin brother. So we're all twin brothers. And um, you can clap. You can clap. Come on. Jay and I were talking, so Lauren and I might have twins. That's right, babe. You heard me. We might have twins next. So I, I looked at my, the life of my family, and I looked at my, my dad, and I thought my dad had, had he'd really squandered an inheritance. My dad had squandered an inheritance. He, he wasn't working when my brother and I were young because of being sick. His body riddled with cancer. He died when I was 16. And I thought, you weren't even around to teach me things that young men need to know. And I looked at my mom. My mom carried the weight of, of a, a family in a big house. We didn't need a big house, but it's what our family wanted. My mom carried the weight of that and struggling under work to keep our family together. I look at my brother. My brother doesn't look like my brother. He's 195-odd kilograms of pure muscle. And he started to become competitive, so he never let me win anything. And when I tried my best to run into him as hard as I could, I just bounced and would 
see this giant over me thinking, you never even let me win. You're so selfish. And um, I started to look at my family through a redemptive, through a Jesus, Savior, redemptive outlook. And I saw my dad, and I thought, my, my dad has done the greatest thing he ever did for me. He used to sit in the car in the parking lot in pain watching me in the sea, doing what I love to do. I saw my dad do the greatest thing on his deathbed, receiving Jesus as his Savior, showing me that that is the actual way to live your life, is redemptively. And I saw him give his life to Jesus, not knowing what happened. I saw my mom serving her work and hating. She hated her work. She probably hated everyone at her work. The day she met Jesus, she humbled her heart. She had a proud heart. Sorry, Mom, if you're listening to this. She had a proud heart. She came to the front. One of the only people in a room, probably a crowd like this, stood up by herself, gave her heart to Jesus, humbled every thought, every attitude, every accusation, went back to work the next week. I love my job. I'm in my job because Jesus has put me in my job, and I'm there to make a difference. Started telling people in her work about the change that has happened in her, her heart. My brother is a teacher and a worship leader, and he serves on his church eldership. He's there every single weekend from the first till the last, and he is serving people and leading them in worship and speaking life into people's bones. And I just thought, oh my goodness, there is power and glory in a family that worships God together, and I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. And friends, there is power and glory when you change the way you see what God is doing and you start expecting him to move in power and in glory. I mean, if we went around the room right now, there, is, there are stories on your heart. I heard an absolutely incredible story. They don't even know the story is incredible this morning, speaking to a, a former colleague. And she said, you know what? I've started reading the scripture with my husband. My husband doesn't know Jesus, but he's getting excited about scripture already. And my heart burned. I thought, oh my goodness. Give it a month, maybe give it less. Soon he'll be walking in this building. And there is a family that will be worshiping Jesus and they will tell their family. And they will tell their family. And they're not telling because, oh, it's something. They are telling because there is power and there is glory that happens in this place and in you and in me. And we take it out of this building. Amen. So before we jump onto verse 3, the incredible part in the scripture where it says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. When David talks about the sanctuary, he talks about a gathering, a collection of people worshiping God. I don't know about you, but when I go out of these four walls and I go home, I, I try to stay not like it's meditation, but in a constant state of, of being so mindful of God and worshiping. So when I'm at work, I try and make sure I'm speaking to God. I, I want to I spend my whole day with him. And worship him and tell him how great he is. But that is not the same feeling when we gather here as a family together and we're worshiping him together. Do you get the same thing in your heart? When, we, when I stand in the front here for the past probably couple of months, I've stood in the front and my one friend said to me, you need to listen to the people. Is there faith in the room? And I thought, what the heck are you talking about? That sounds like mystical. And I hear faith in the room because I hear you singing. Faith cannot come from standing there and not saying anything. I don't care if your hands are raised. I don't care if you're doing cartwheels. But when your mouth is singing as loud as it can because your heart identifies with, with who Jesus is, there's faith in my heart, and I know there's faith in your heart to see him do stuff. And that doesn't happen necessarily when we're at home watching the Hillsong thing, headbanging, and like our kids are wondering what we're doing. That's a wonderful place to be in but there is something in our corporate meeting when we meet together where God speaks to us, 
where God encourages us, where hope is imparted into your hearts. Amen? That's why it's cool when you say to someone next to you, God's going to speak to me. I don't know why that weirdo is telling me to say this, but everybody's doing it, so I have to as well. And then he speaks to you, and you have a word that's dropped into your heart. Verse 3. We love from God for God. It's plain to see how much David loves God. Our greatest fulfillment as people comes when our truest desires are met. That's not dreams we long for, but it's a sense in our spirits. My greatest desire is not to own an island and live on that tropical island with my wife and my family. My greatest desire is to know the God who I'm going to spend eternity with. And I know it's yours. When peace captures... How's this? I had this in my notes. So when peace captures your heart and mind because something has happened in your spirit... I didn't even know that, that image this morning. The God of peace will come through here triumphantly, declaring peace over us. And that's what's happening this morning. So three days before Jesus was being crucified for the sins of the world, the teachers of the law came to him and said, Jesus, here is the Bible, minus the New Testament, because you're living in it. It hasn't been written yet. But here is the Bible. Here is the word. Here is, here is the the." The songs, the poems, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the history books, the Torah, the books of the law. Here is everything. Do us a favor. Tell us what. What's the greatest thing ever written in there? Give us the one verse. Divide that up. Divide all the revelation that God has given us. Every word he's spoken, we know we speak it in our synagogues and our churches. Divide it up for us. Please tell us what is the one greatest thing. How? How? How how do you come up with that question? How do you look at a whole book of what God has said and say, tell us the one greatest thing? How do you, what's happening on in your head and in your heart where you say that? Imagine someone said that to you, gives that to you. Give me, not your favorite scripture. They didn't say, Jesus, what is your favorite scripture? What's the one you like quoting the most? For God to love the world, don't say that. What is your favorite scripture? Come on, make it a difficult one. Maybe one we don't know, even though we know most of it off by heart. Which is the one that is of the most value? What's the most important part of this book? And isn't it amazing that they are in a situation trying to confront him to find something against him. They're asking the greatest person who's ever walked the earth about the greatest book ever written, and they have no idea. They're trying to catch him out for something. We need to kill this guy how we presume God to be, how we think he's, he's not doing what we think. What can we find? What accusation can we find against him? And it, it's such a moment in the Bible where, where my mind is blown by them asking him, what is the greatest thing that's ever happened in this word? Can, can you tell it to us? You presume to know the power. You, you say the things you say. What's the greatest thing? And, and they're not expecting an answer. I think they're expecting him to, to hiccup on words or to say the wrong thing so that an accusation can be brought. And in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, Jesus says, you shall, love the God with all, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't that incredible? You shall love God. You shall love God. What does it mean to love God? If someone at your work came to you and said, what does it mean to love God? You say you love God. What do you mean you love God? It's very simply. I try to find the simplest 
definition because you, you, you don't want an answer more complicated than the question. It's not philosophical. It means to value God more than anything. To value his infinite love that he's given you and he's given me more than anything. His loving kindness that he's, that he's put into your heart and into my heart. Do you value that more than anything? Do I value that more than anything? That's what it means to love God. Verse 4. Worship and value God. This is what Brian Johnson says. He says, we may not be able to control the impact, size, or influence of our lives, but we can always control our worship. We'll never know how, how much we'll achieve, how much we'll do, the impact we'll leave on this earth, how big our family will be, how big anything will be, what we'll get, what we'll give away. We'll never know the answers to all those questions. We, can't, we cannot control them, but the one thing we can control is our worship to God. Isn't that amazing? You can control your worship to God. I can't control it, and you can't control mine. You have absolute control from the time that you raise your hands to him to the time that you put them down. When David sat on the throne, he was a worshiper. From the backside of the desert, he had spent much of his life worshiping God before that throne, before there was status, before there was expectation of him. It was not for performance or for any kind of wanting of anything for himself. He was a worshiping person. In victory over Goliath, in defeat over Bathsheba, that was his rest position, was worshiping God. How's this? In worship, there is a communion with God. Communion with God. Him who we hold such value to has poured out his love into our hearts, and it's him who calls me valuable. I'll read that again. In worship, there is communion with God. Him who we hold such value has poured out his love into our hearts, and he then calls me valuable. Now, for David, his normal, I can't think of a better word than his default position. So, you know, you have the scale of the pendulum and where it stops is at the bottom, right? That's called its default position or its normal, its position of normal. David's position of normal was worship. His position of normal was to value God. I'm going to use the words interchangeably, worship and value, because whenever we hear worship, we, we think that Kara and Sneha better be on their game and they better lead us in a cool song or else. That's not worship. Worship is to, to value God. Okay? It's so much more than that. That's part of it, but it's so much more. So David's normal position, where he found himself at, was to value God. Now, the word normal can be changed very quickly with nominal. Do you know what nominal means? Nominal means this. This is the dictionary definition. Existing in name only, not really or actual. It's only the name. So if, if I said that David's nominal position of worship was to worship, well, you'd say, well, that's what you'd call it. That's what you'd call it. It would be devoid. It would have nothing of God's glory or his power. That's not what it is. That's not where, that, we can't allow that over our lives. We have to speak to that this morning. If you think that your position of worship is nominal, it exists in name. I go to church to worship because, and listen to this guy preach because that's what it's called. It's not what it is if you're not actually taking part. And this morning you get to take part and I get to take part. We can say, God, would you speak because I'm here to listen. And God in his loving kindness, friends, because he values us probably more than we value him, will speak to you and he'll put hope in your heart. Amen. Okay, we're nearly done. Stick with me. The best part is on its way. 
So A.W. Tozer says this. This is part of the, the verse 5. Verse 5 onwards. God's love permeates every part of our lives. Like a river, it flows and brings life. So from verse 5, if you re- read verse 5 down, you'll see this pattern of, of God's permeating love. Even in the most difficult parts, that's where it goes. A.W. Tozer says, How thankful we should be to discover that it is God's desire to lead every willing heart into depths and heights of divine knowledge and communion. Say to the person next to you, depths and heights. Say divine knowledge and communion. When did that start? When was that God's intention? To lead you into depths and heights of divine knowledge and communion. The day that you met Jesus and your spirit cried out to God, that word Abba means dad. The day that dad... God became your dad. The day that dad became God. The day that God became your dad, your spirit became alive and your, your, your inside cried, Abba, Father. From that moment on, your worship has begun. From that moment. And it hasn't ceased. Sometimes maybe the interlude's a little bit longer and etc. and the instrumental's going for a bit long because you haven't actually said anything to him. But your worship hasn't ceased. That's the day it began. So I want to ask you this question. If you had to write a psalm, what would it sound like? If I had to give you a piece of paper now and said, would you write Psalm 151 for me? What would it sound like? Take one minute to think so I can have a drink of water. Here's what I think it might sound like. I'll give you your first two lines. I've seen highs, I've seen lows. There's so much that I've felt. God, can you explain the hand that I've been dealt? Do you feel like that sometimes? God pulls the cards out like that, and he says, take a card. And you feel like what he's given you is what you're stuck with because that's who God is. He's given you your lots and that's what you've got. I felt like God say, use this analogy. What's that one? The king of? Clubs. Some of us feel like we have to really, really go through a lot. We've been through the hurts. We've been through the disappointments, perhaps in church, perhaps out of church. But God, I, I, I don't know if I can step into anything more of what you have for me because I've been hurt. I've got regrets with people I've trusted, with you I've trusted. I still got that little bit of anger in my heart. What's that one? King of spades. God, I, I, I work really hard. Do I have to? I see people who are not working harder than me, who are earning more money than me. God, I feel like I'm working to earn this thing. I feel like you say to me that salvation is free and you're my dad, but actually I feel like I have to kind of work to get your attention. And the work to me, well, it feels like it's too hard to do. Treasures and talents. God, these things belong to me. I've, I've actually, I've earned them. 
this thing that I'm talented at, I kind of made that happen. I paid for university. I worked and studied at the same time. That four-year degree, I'm talking about myself here, that four-year degree I got, I paid out of my pocket for it. That was my pocket. That was my money. I was working and studying through UNISA at the same time. I earned that degree. Everything I'm doing now, well, I'm pretty sure I stepped through that door myself. God, I don't really know if I can commit everything else I've got to you. And you know what the last one is, right? This is the real issue. Have you let God, who, who I mean, the king of my heart, king of my heart, God, there is nothing inside here that I value more than you. There is nothing in here, God, that I find worth my concentration, worth my stress than you. Because, God, I know that in your leading, you have the best intention for this heart. There is no other king of anyone's heart. I think if you had to look for the opposite of this, you'd find heartbreaker. Anything else besides God, friends, he will take your heart and he will do what with it? Kill, rob, and destroy. But God has a special place for your heart and for my heart. He really does. He really does. He's not trying to take something away from you. He's not trying to take away your sport. He's not trying to take away your hobby. He's not trying to take away your anything. He wants to look after your heart, and he's the best one to look after your heart. Thank you for listening. 